This is a Strategist, episode 1279. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan. Guys, we have done it. It is the whitest Orthodox New Year's Eve slash New Year's ever, Carter. And your prediction? Congratulations, Stephen. Yay! We, we can't afford the yeah. sound effects anymore, yeah. but we've got me just clapping, okay? We've got me clapping. Um, oh, great. That's good. What did yeah. I do? That was not a... Well, you, Carter, do you not remember on the Holiday Spectacular? On the Holiday Spectacular. Yeah. You named a no, Filipino I person. I don't remember. <laughs> you, I have uh, you actually nailed it. blocked that one out. Yeah, um, I blocked that one out. Next time, just be yeah, nicer at Jollibee, yeah. and you will be able to uh, have the name of Filipino person in your back pocket, Carter. Okay? Not but you lie, did it. don't know okay. what Jollibee is. Okay, well... It's a Filipino chain. It's very good. Oh, my God, yeah. Carter. That you is actually infuriating. It it's great. Now, now you're infuriating How? me even more. How do you not know what Jollibee? <laughs> Carter, How? okay. I mean, why would I know that? Regardless, you knew, other, okay. you knew other answers in the Holiday Spectacular, which, of course, 100% perfect predictor of how white uh, Orthodox New Year's Eve slash New Year's Day would be, slash day would be. And here we are, Carter. Yeah. Uh, the Deep whitest. freeze, baby. The whitest. Yeah. We have absolutely done it. Corey, um, you know, despite his lackluster, uh, albeit ignorant performance, some might say, uh, Carter does it again. Okay? C- Carter does it again. Ignorant. The man's got a gift. <laughs> I'd never take it away from him. I, 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 I wouldn't take it away from him. Uh, speaking of things being taken away, uh, Carter, let's move it on to our ver- first segment. Our first segment here, lack of power to the people. Can we talk about this, Corey? <laughs> we sit here in... Uh, yes, we can. I guess we can indeed. We sit here in Alberta, um, which is um, which is not news to most people. I think they know that we sit here in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, but Carter, like all Albertans last night, I, see, I re-record this on Sunday evening, last night being Sunday, uh, we had an issue, uh, an alert that was issued to all of our cell phones, Apple Watches, iPads, televisions, across radio um, by the Alberta Electric System operator, urging all of us to reduce our electricity usage to essentials only to prevent what they would call rotating outages. The alert came a few hours after the Alberta Electric System operator declared that the grid, the grid alert did extreme cold, high demand, and low imports, almost a perfect storm, as they, they, they tried to uh, uh, clarify in some of their communication, Corey, uh, around what was going on and why us as everyday Albertans should probably unplug that electric vehicle, probably not use unnecessary appliances. This came to people on a 7 p.m. on a Saturday evening, right? Like, this was something that that hit all of us. Corey, there's the policy, there's the complication of what happened, why it happened, then there's also the fun politics, and I put fun in air quotes, because people have already selected sides. When this alert came to you yesterday, talk to me about Topline, what you assessed from a political lens. You can get into the policy lens of it and around the system breakdown, et cetera, if you'd like. But from a political lens, when you saw it, did you chuckle? Did you sigh? And and what was the chuckle and or sigh about? Well, I, di- I didn't chuckle, per se. I- I'd been sort of watching it all day uh, uh, since the ISO put out the alert in the afternoon talking about tight supply in the evening. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were. And actually, it's funny. My sister texted me I don't know, 10 minutes before this alert going out saying, hey, if you're not severely online, like if you're not on Twitter, how are you supposed Mm -hmm, to know mm -hmm. that we're in a situation of tight supply? And so when I saw it, my first thought was, oh, oh boy, this is A, this is new, and B, because it's new, this this could very well be serious, and we could be looking at rotating blackouts at a time when, um, you know, if 
if you are not listening to this in Alberta, basically, as soon as we release it, you'll probably forget, like, the coldest day basically recorded in yeah. Calgary and Edmonton, right? Yeah, very cold. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. while we all use natural gas to heat our homes, uh, because Justin Trudeau won't pay for our heat pumps, um, you know, we got a situation here where those things still require electricity generally to to kind of kick off and run and, and all of that. So, yeah, my first thought was, oh, this this might be pretty serious. And and then my next one was curiosity. Like, is this going to work? Like, is sending everybody in the province a turn off the lights text going to work? And it seems like it did. But ultimately, while I'm grateful that we didn't end up in a situation where we were shedding load and and having to curtail and or having to curtail, uh, you know, through rotating blackouts or brownouts or whatever you want to call them, I think um, it's reasonable to ask how we got here. Certainly, well, there was a lot of difficulty in a lot of other jurisdictions. Alberta seemed to be in a, a uniquely tight situation, but, uh, you know, I say that, but then I also know that a lot of people immediately went to, well, that's the problem with renewables. We got rid of all of this coal generation. Wind took over so much of it, and it was very little wind in Alberta. And that is true. There was very little wind. So um, I do think ultimately that alert and the conversation that will spill out of it is a bit of a political Rorschach test. Like you're going to see in it what you want to see. You're either going to see a government that has mismanaged the electricity file hand in hand with the uh, with the ASO, with the electric system operator, um, for many years. Or you are going to see the folly of renewables. Or you are going to see uh, that's just how severe the weather was here. You, you know, no matter what your lens is, you're going to you're going to see something in this. And we're going to see all sorts of elevated politics as a result. You know, I, I, I will just extend on that that Rorschach test um, sort of analogy, Corey, because I, I agree with it. And I would also take it further to say the 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 instance of the alert, getting an alert also is a Rorschach test in some ways, which is this is a government that is prepared, that's communicating, or this is a government that's going to a last ditch effort because of the lack of planning, preparation, and or policy, and then kind of hail marrying it and saying, this is your problem now, help us out, do us a solid sort of thing, right? 7 p.m. on a Saturday. Well, oh, yeah, yeah, and, and look, I mean, I, I the policy is super interesting, and yeah, some people are going to say that, and they're going to say, why is this, now I've got to reduce demand, but I think actually flexible demand is going to be part of electric systems going forward. So, hey, it's super interesting. Carter, jump in here. Give, give me your top-line thoughts, and then I want to actually jump into the to the raw politics, which is, of course, what the show is focused on. Well, I mean, power purchasing, the, the power market is a mess in Alberta, in part because we decided to make it a mess during Ralph Klein's tenure. And then it got more of a mess through trying to fix that. And and we like to point to the NDP and say, well, the NDP screwed it up. Well, actually, you know, I remember being briefed on this because we had brownouts during my tenure as uh, uh, chief of staff to Alison Redford. And I'll tell you something. It wasn't based on Did renewables. they interrupt your meetings with uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving? Yeah, that's yeah they, were the, the they were the, the intermittent meetings with uh, with power were, were interrupted by MAD meetings. Also, Florida. just so you know, uh, brownouts, uh, also known as the Muslim ban in the U.S. Okay, keep Thank going. Thank you Carter. very yeah. much. Thank you. Um, but the PPA, like I, I kept saying to the people in, in energy, explain the PPAs like I'm an idiot because I don't even understand why you would do it. So one company produces the power. You sell that power to another company at a reduced rate. That other company then sells it back into the grid at a profit. And the citizens of Alberta get fucked. Is that is that an, a, a, a summary of it? Yeah, kind of. Anyways, 
that's what we were dealing with. We then had a Corey doesn't like my description. Uh, yeah, at all. Well, no, you'll get over it. That's fine. Um, <clears throat> we had a power plant that was under construction or that was under maintenance, and th- we're trying to find out why it was under maintenance. And it was under maintenance because its primary, you know, it was selling electricity below cost. Um, so that's why it was under maintenance. And these things, if you're going to have a, a free, don't do that. Don't shake your head. I was there. No, <laughs> no, man. No. Don't shake yeah, your okay. head. I was there. I was there. <laughs> briefing after briefing, we wound up with no power in the exact same situation because the market, uh, the incentives sometimes don't work. And if we had a truly free market system, it might work. If we had a truly regulated system, it might work. But instead, we have a hodgepodge of a system that has been created by successive governments years over years, and it doesn't work particularly well. And the re- and then, because people are partisan, they get to point the finger and say, it's actually because of renewables. It's not actually because of renewables. It's because we haven't done a good enough job on our carbon capture and sequestration. We haven't done a good enough job generating more electricity through renewables. We haven't done a good enough job on our batteries. We haven't even done a good enough job on hydro. So there's many different things that we can do to ensure that we've got the power system that we're supposed to have, but we haven't done them. And Corey, now do you want to do cleanup on my stuff or do you want me just to to go back and name names? Because I will. I mean, I beg you not to. Uh, uh, it's just that the company is not flush enough to deal with your your madness here. But not madness. Look, I, I think that there's a kernel of truth to what you're saying. There's a lot of oversimplification. The reality is Alberta's electricity market is unique in a Canadian context and the way we approach it. This electricity only market, not a ton of inner ties to our neighbors. And, and so we sort of sometimes float on our own body of water here and things go up things go down and and it's not necessarily what's happening elsewhere it's what's happening here and there's a lot of challenges with that and like a lot of systems of of this kind of scale and complexity if they don't have care and attention to them if you're not thinking thoughtfully through them every step of the way things can get out of whack in a hurry and look a lot of people can argue about the uh you know, the capacity markets that the uh, the NDP were going to introduce uh, at the request of the ASO that the Kenny government then got rid of, like did decided, no, we were not going to go to capacity markets. The capacity market is essentially paying somebody to have supply at the ready is, yeah. is kind of a simple way to put it. And now we're in a situation where we didn't have supply at the ready. And so you can kind of look at that and say, well, that's, that's a little fucked, right? But one of the challenges here is these... The reason why a capacity market was looking more necessary is because we were going to have more intermittent power sources with solar and with wind, and we were going to need the ability to have capacity at the ready when uh, you know when a moment like this occurred, or if a gas plant went offline or something like that. And we didn't do it, so we changed half the system, right? We didn't change the other half the system. And half is even being too generous with my fractions here because there were so many other actions that are mm-hmm. uh, that are ASO and that our government should have been considering over the past few years as we sort of look at what's ahead of us here and if there's going to be more intermittent supplies. Like, we've got to be talking about smart grids. We've got to be talking about inner ties to other areas. We've got to be talking about the ways that we can, just like the alert did, although probably with less drama, encourage people or direct people or pay people to reduce their demand at times when there's supply. And we haven't done any of that. 
That's one of the we things that really pisses me off about Alberta. I mean, we don't have lower de- lower prices when there's lower demand. We talk about being a market pr- market uh, based economy, but you know, Corey, you and I have electric vehicles because we're smarter than everybody else, right? And but we program our electric vehicles to charge when the demand is less because that makes sense. It's better for everybody if you program your vehicle to charge when the demand is less. And instead of, of giving us a, a lower price, as they do in other markets around the world, we are stuck paying the exact same rate, even though we're doing the right thing for the system. Okay. Yeah. Well, and look, again, like hodgepodge of decisions, some of them were made to solve problem A or problem B and it resulted in problem C. And and I guess in some ways, that's we're getting super deep down the policy hole. Yeah. I guess the point I want to return to is everybody's got reasons to see the story they want to see in this, right? If you are somebody who buys into the Danielle Smith, tell the feds, nobody wants to freeze in the dark narrative. You can't trust wind. You can't trust solar. Well, isn't this a wonderful case? Let me, let, if you are somebody... Let me start there. Remarkable hey. coincidence. Let me start there, because that's exactly where I wanted to go on the politics side. Carter, and I'm going to give you what Corey's put out there, which is tell the feds. Uh, how would you take the events of this weekend mold them together, and make them politically advantageous as a message for Danielle Smith and the UCP. By the way, I look at tellthefeds.ca, it's down right now, which in its own it right, is, which I know, in its own right there there's an irony. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Carter... Uh, it, Nobody wants to to get a 404 page on the web. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's, tell the feds. Yeah, tell the feds, yeah. yeah. Um, tell, well, Justin Trudeau took it down. I don't know if you know that. He fucked, he fucked up. Oh, over. man. Yeah, yeah. Carter. Was it his climate police? It was. Probably. It was Stephen Gilbo on a bike. Bicycle. Sorry, just so you're clear. Um, Carter, how do you mold this into a good story politically for the uh, for the UCP this weekend? Corey, I'm going to get you to play the other side in a sec. Well, I think that it just unfolds almost almost as a good story. People who are, I mean, Corey's political rotash that, yeah, mm. because you know, if you believe that this is something that could happen, and now it's happened. I mean, it happened mm. not years from now, not years down the road. It happened mere months, mere months after Danielle Smith said that it might happen. And here we are uh, in a province with 20,000 megawatts of generation opportunity, generating 12,000 and being absolutely at our upper limit and no longer being able to supply Albertans with the power that they need. Look at that. We can't even go above that. If it gets colder, if it, if it gets warmer, we're not going to be able to supply and protect, just as Danielle said. And and the line, just as Danielle said, um, could, be, could be your tagline um, for the next couple of weeks because it looks like she was very much uh, prophetic here and, and predicting that she... You know, this was going to happen, and now uh, here it is. It has happened uh, in no small part because of the decisions that uh, have been made by government, as Corey alluded to. Uh, But nonetheless, it doesn't matter what the reason is. All that matters is that the outcome has has occurred as expected, as promised. Danielle is a truth teller. That's what I would say. Corey, play the other side for me. What would you uh, say if you're the opposing NDP or those with a political interest in ensuring that the UCP don't get away with the narrative, whether it's the same or similar to what Carter just put out there seconds ago with uh, uh, Daniel Smith becoming a luminary and prophet of the conservative circle? Yeah, well, the, the first thing I would not do is try to say, no, 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 renewables are, are not intermittent. Mm. Right? Like, I, I think... 
you've got to avoid that. Yeah, the wind doesn't always blow. Yeah, the sun goes down when the sun goes down. And by the way, we knew the wind wasn't going to be blowing at these particular times, right? The, these intermittencies are are a known thing, right? There are capacity factors for electricity. It basically says, what percent of the time can you expect a plant to be up? And they're not super high for wind or solar. So when Carter talks about 20,000 megawatts of capacity, you know, there's that's like the max possible, like the capacity yeah. factors underneath that are always going to reduce that. And the more you have wind or solar in there, or frankly, even just unreliable old plants, you're going to see lower actual capacity factors, you know, take account here. You do not want to get in the fight about whether the wind always blows or the sun always shines. <laughs> uh, and in fact, I think if you can avoid, um, you know, the, the idea that renewables are at the heart of this in general, I think you'd say, look, there are a lot of other jurisdictions in Canada, and we are the only ones with this problem. So you can blame the feds all you want, but it seems the rest of our federation managed to weather this okay. Second thing I would point out is um, the government themselves identified that that there were problems as a result of canceling the capacity market. There were quotes from Daniel Smith to this effect. You can actually go back to Hansard and you can look at quotes that were done by then Minister of Energy Sonia Savage saying, oh, the government or the opposition is saying that if we do these things, these risks occur, but we think these risks are overblown. We've got 25% additional capacity. We're best in class right now. Honestly, I'm not entirely convinced that the capacity market would have been the panacea here, but like the whole idea, if you're paying people for extra capacity is maybe there's a reason to keep older plants online. Maybe there's a reason to sort of contemplate the time of year that these things are going to go down and, and, you know, govern yourself accordingly. It really depends on how you build these things out. But I think you've got to move it onto the ground of like, this is actually not about renewables really at all, right? We knew the wind wasn't going to blow. And we we still had projected that we were going to be fine. What happened intervening there? Well, the problem is we've got a little bit of a broken system. And it's broken because these guys broke it. And, and I think that that's more the argument you need to make. But I want to stress, it's a little harder. And I actually agree with Carter. I think that this is kind of a win for people who don't like solar or wind. I think that's just the way easier argument for the public. So yeah. so here's a question ultimately for, for you guys. And I'll kind of get you to take your team hats off. And I'll start with you on this one, Carter. Is this enough of a good story that the UCP should put political weight, capital, time, energy into it on the on the on the heels of this weekend? Is this enough of a good story uh, that they should like, because I asked you guys to construct narratives because we do this academically, but now in the real world, should they do more than that? Should they actually try to engineer this, make this a point, you know, do all the things that are available at their disposal as government and as a political party to lean into what happened this weekend? What would you say, Corey? I've got the same question for you in a sec. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, first of all, it's not going to be much of a lean. You're barely going to have to lean into it in order to make it a story. I mean, the the news media is going to do some of this lifting for you. I mean, you know, people were told that they might have to turn off their toasters. Um, this this was a big deal, and because of that, um, they were scared. And there is no po- more powerful force in politics than fear. Um, so when they get scared and when they decide that this is not uh, not good, then you you. If you don't take advantage of it, you actually risk having it backfire on you. This 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 may be, in fact, a mandatory thing uh, where Danielle Smith has to take mm. advantage of it in order to ensure 
that the proper enemy has identified. And the proper enemy in this particular case would be uh, Justin Trudeau. You know, that's the enemy. Let's go after him. Here we've got the proof. And don't worry about, you know, Corey's Hor- Hor- Corey Hogan's arguments and discussions uh, on Twitter about, you know, why we may be in this situation with just took 10 whole tweets. Uh, instead, look at just the fact that people are scared and they know who to blame. That person to blame shouldn't be you. So you are therefore required to point the finger at someone else. Corey, would you lean into this? You're advising the Premier tonight. Would you Would you lean into next week and say, fuck it, let's go ham on this? Yeah, well, look, I think one of the reasons why it would be very tempting for them to do it is, and a lot of people with a lot more knowledge in this space than I would, would say the same is, there is reason to believe what the federal government is trying to get Alberta to do in terms of this rapid transition is not likely to be successful unless you have the ability to bring gas online or, uh, you know, otherwise uh, sources of electricity that can be rapidly dispatched here. And, you know, it's that kernel of truth. Now, there's a there's a it's wrapped in a bit of a lie here because there's nothing that actually precludes that, you know, if, if these regs are written in the right way or in a good way. But like that kernel of truth, I think, is something that gives them sort of the legitimate ability to say, like, yeah, this is not going to work. Like, there are going to be days where this is not going to work and we can't all freeze, right? And again, lots of things people could be doing, could be investing in storage, battery storage, oh, yeah. could be investing in, you know, policy changes. We already talked about ties. We already talked about all of this stuff. But that's really, uh, like, okay, who's going to entertain that argument? Uh, to Carter's point, you can just say, like, we hit a moment. We wouldn't have been in that moment if we had a different type of electricity generation, right? We had, at one point, a lot of coal generation. That coal generation is in the, you know, it's in the situation of being converted right now. And you're going to have more gas plants coming online and more conversions coming online. But it's not currently. And if you looked at, like, just generation by source in Alberta, you'd see coal fall off a cliff. You'd see gas go up. I'm, I'm going from memory here. I don't know, half what get coal went down and you'd see wind and cogen i think basically making up the difference there so so like you can look at these things and you can have a set of facts and you can actually make a pretty compelling case like hey this is the risk if you go down this road and actually i kind of agree it is if you don't do a bunch of other stuff that is complicated and potentially unpopular and expensive and so i guess one of the pities here is that ultimately it's like an argument about whether we think dispatchable electricity is good or not of course it's fucking good the real challenge is fossil fuels are killing the planet, but that's also not an argument anybody wants to hear right now, because that's just a little bit higher on Maslow's hierarchy of needs than I need there to be heat mm. in my house. So, you know, it's it's all a bit of a mess if you are trying to take a more nuanced, a more thoughtful, or a more uh, anti-government view. But if you're Danielle Smith, it's actually a pretty easy story. Look at this. The wind doesn't always blow. Justin Trudeau wants us to rely on these sources of power, which have proven themselves unreliable. You all got the alert. The experts are saying the same thing. Asterisk, not really, but sort of, you know. And that's, of course, they're going to go ham on it. Carter? Of course they are. Carter, what's the best immune sort of defense to this, if you're the NDP, official opposition, right? You're anticipating it. You've got someone... You know, you know, there's a lot of minds and a lot of eyes on their their ongoing leadership. But you got someone putting a couple of sentences together. What are some of the points you'd say that need to make up their their defense against uh, the point that both of you are making that you know this case is easy to lean into and and the UCP should heading into this week. 
the UCP can blame Trudeau all they want, but, you know, to quote a great premier of uh, Alberta's past, if they really want to know who the culprit is, they need to look in the mirror. Uh, they need to make a decision about, you know, carbon capture and storage, for example. If we were to deliver our carbon capture and storage the way that we've been, you know, promoting it, uh, if we were able to deliver CCS the way we've been talking about it, then this wouldn't be an issue because we'd be able to store the carbon that is generated out of this natural gas switch. Yes, we switched significantly from coal to uh, natural gas. That was an NDP initiative. That shift happened, but it still didn't eliminate the primary problem. And the primary problem was then was invested in many years before by Ed Stelmack. There's lots of opportunity to continue to generate the, the electricity that's needed without putting us in the position where we have to worry every summer about smoke and potentially burning down one of our great cities. I like that. Corey, anything to add? I want to move on right after this. Yeah, look, the, the UCP is trying to vilify those few megawatts of electricity we got from renewables that actually kind of saved our asses. If we didn't have them, we'd be in even more trouble. And the fact of the matter is simple. The thing we told you would happen, happened. We told you not to cancel the capacity market. We told you about the importance of reliability. And you said the market would figure it out. Well, you and the market have been in charge for four fucking years. And it's not figured out. And it's it's time for a better way to do these things, a more thoughtful way to do these things. This is a government that's been entirely asleep at the switch on the subject of electricity. And they're playing distraction politics right now. The simple fact is, the thing we told you would happen, happened. And you told us we were wrong. I like You're it. wrong classic messaging session we haven't done those in a while where we whiteboard out a message for for both it's always sides. fun to uh, get to do the other side carter i never know you. with you who the other side is week to week carter who knows you know it's it's <laughs> good you're point. so convincing and it's a fair point you're a chameleon either way <laughs> carter let's move it on to our next segment Stephen carter our next segment on the house I want to talk about something. We'll take a bit of a left turn here, Carter. This is an interesting story coming out of Ottawa. Well, not so much Ottawa. Actually, the West Bank. Um, There are liberal and NDP MPs, Carter, that are going to be traveling to the West Bank to connect with Palestinians. This is an initiative completely paid for uh, and sponsored by an organization called the Canadian Muslim Vote, a registered nonprofit Muslim charity. Five MPs, as I mentioned, including two liberals, are on this uh, particular trip where they're going to meet with the Palestinian community, uh, community, I should say, on the ground in the West Bank. The details of this are, are interesting, and I think it's worthwhile, and, and, and I'll full disclosure, the Canadian Muslim Votes, an organization I've you know helped in the past and, and know of, but that's not what I want to discuss here. I want to go to the strategy, Carter, the political tactics when we talk about advocacy of hosting. I find this to be fascinating. We've talked about things like government relations in the past, how to do good GR, how to move ministers on files, how to write a good and execute on good persuasive letters, how to have a good meeting, how to you know go in for the ask. We've talked about all that extensively. We've talked about grassroots advocacy, this concept of building a public coalition so that MPs and others and decision makers are pressured to do the right thing, so to speak, because of the volume of the their electorate and their voters that... that want a certain thing. And then we've also talked about, you know, the broader sort of uh, tools of, of advocacy ranging in from from one-on-one meet and greets, events, etc. We have not talked about paying for someone's bill to go do something, go see something, uh, and host them. 
make them the, your guest in that way. We've done it in the small way, you know, attend my my drinks sort of event in, in Ottawa at 5 p.m. You know, we'll host you on, on the hill. We've talked about that. But this is fundamentally really, I think, kind of different, Carter. And we haven't talked about the strategy of hosting. Uh, paying for folks that are elected officials to go see a thing, do a thing, engage with the thing that is important to you. And in this case, this is a strategy taken on by the Canadian Muslim vote that, you know, I, I would say parrots in some ways, a strategy that has been taken on by uh, by Jewish individuals and, and outright groups supportive of Israel for, for many, many years. But Carter, I wanted to get your thought on this. There's a, There's a sort of expenses paid question. There's an effectiveness of the strategy question. Start with either of those two lanes. If there's a third one you want to carve out, let's do that. But there's a few things to discuss here that I, I think would be worthwhile for the listener. Well, first of all, I have no real direct knowledge of the effectiveness of it. Uh, I mm. would say that Israel's been doing it for uh, quite a long time. Um, and I think that their metrics must show that it's working because um, they've they've been doing it for uh, for a long time. I'm, I'm not going to even venture a guess as to how long because I think it predates me. Um, and you know, it, it, it's not just available to uh, Jewish members of parliaments or Jewish elected folks. Anybody uh, can wind up being hosted by the state of Israel or Israel uh, associated groups, and they will. Yeah, I think it's get- the CIJA. Okay, uh, so, is so, the group that actually does it, but yeah. Yeah, so they get they they have the opportunity to be hosted and and um, you know see what's going on in Israel, see what the, the particular challenges are, and now this particular group uh, is is you know the this uh, you know Muslim group is taking on the same opportunity to tour the West Bank, and I think that. You know that makes a lot of sense. If if one side is doing a tactic that that is working. Do, you know, the other side should should look at whether or not they should embrace it. Now, I don't mean to necessarily break this down into sides, but I'm, I'm going to do that mm. just for simplicity of the argument. Um, I don't like this. Uh, <laughs> I'm very concerned about the ethics of this. Uh, we have, uh, we've, I think it's fair to say, Corey, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong again, um, very strict conflict of interest laws. And those conflict of interest laws, you know, uh, uh, Ministers can get taken out for things like ordering too much orange juice or, you know, the price of the orange juice or whatever may be the case, um, let alone a trip to another country sponsored or paid for by a by a third party, uh, a nonprofit organization. I struggle with how this is ethical and some of the other things that we do aren't. Um, but I can't argue with the eff- uh, effectiveness of it. I think it is a great way to showcase your issue. Um, my problem is it may be too good a way to show mm. showcase your issue because I think it gives almost an unfair advantage. Uh, and some could say that the most, you know, if we really want to learn about uh, Israeli issues, if we want to learn about West Bank issues, um, perhaps the best way to do it is for, for Canada to pony up and pay for the costs associated with these things, because frankly, they're important to all of us. And uh, when we ask for third parties to pay for something, they often come with an, uh, you know, there's a, there's biases. Well, there's, that there's, show. there's a curatorial, yeah. there's a curatorial element to this on the ground as well. Right. And let's be honest, like in this case and in other cases that there, there's an element of, yeah, we're paying for you, but you're also going to go through our regime or our program on the ground around what we want you to see. Uh, so to speak. 
Corey, there's also biases that go with this. Like literally like people can't, can't separate the, the, the fact that this was given to them. Like the, the fact that this is given to you means that you're going to have a retribution bias and it's going to, you know, it's going to put you in a place where you're going to favor someone Mm -hmm. Um, because they gave you a gift and human psychology is such that that's probably going to happen. Even if you're aware that it happens. Mm. Corey, like on the specifics, I'll say only for myself that like, I'm glad this is happening, that the folks at TCMV are are doing this, but it's not even part of the story that we want to discuss. This is almost about the effectiveness of the, the practice. And then as Carter's brought up the, the ethics of the practice overall, where do you want to start? You want to hit up on ethics? You want to talk on effectiveness? Where do you want to go? Yeah, well, let's talk about the rules. I, you know, the ethics in a in a kind of a more philosophical sense have to be maybe considered separate from that. But this is allowed under the rule. I, I mean, it almost does feel like a loophole to Stephen's yeah. point here. But MPs are allowed to accept what's called sponsored travel from mm-hmm. groups. And this sponsored travel, uh, you, you know, essentially covers the costs of the trip and their accommodations and the activities that they were doing there. And the purpose is... I think to allow them to learn from these groups, that obviously seems to be the basis of it. It is a it is an exemption in the rules around gifts for parliamentarians. And it's a pretty fucking big one because yeah. I just while Carter was talking, I looked up some of the stats, I think from 2022 is what I found. And basically it's an average value of like ten thousand dollars. Yeah, it's not insignificant. Like that's that's significant. That's a significant amount of money there. And that's the amount of money that has to be reported. It actually doesn't fully capture the cost of of that curation you're talking about, Zane. You know, all mm-hmm, of the work mm-hmm. that goes into making those events, the events that they are here. Now, ministers can't take it. It's mm-hmm. only available to MPs who are not ministers or parliamentary secretaries. But it is, like like Carter said, kind of, a, kind of an eyebrow-raising, uh, you know, exemption because... It does allow uh, groups to sort of circumvent what are otherwise like super low, like $200 or something like that is the gift limit. You know, $200 is the gift limit unless they're taking you somewhere, in which case it's it, it's unlimited, you know, it's $10,000. Plus a donation limit, Corey. A donation limit. I mean, yeah. that is the equivalent of like, not, you know, nine donations, eight donations from individuals that you'd have to get, all coming from one group just to fly you somewhere and, and uh, you know, take you on a tour. I, I, it is a big, big loophole. I guess, Corey, you know, well, what, and so go ahead, Corey. Yeah. Jump in on this. Look, I'll just say that like, they're not paying the money at it. They're paying the money because they, they want to expose you to something. They want to expose you to a point of view. They want to, you know, it's, it's classic tin staple stuff. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You're going to have to listen to the timeshare pitch if you show up. And uh, I think we should be a bit mindful that, when MPs do that, they are going to hear one side of things. One of the interesting things I think you should always ask when you get a pitch from any group is, and sometimes I, I've even directly asked the group, right? Like the person who's opposed comes in right after, what are they going to say about this thing that you've mm. just said, right? Like what was the counter view? But that's not really something that happens on these particular trips. And so, you know, there is something to be said about, you know, how how balanced the diet is, how broad-based the diet is, whatever word you want to choose when when somebody is digesting the worldviews and narratives of, of an individual group. I guess putting our, our advocacy hats on, our practitioner hats on, Carter, 
Would you advise people to do this more? Because I almost look at sponsored travel as a technical word. I almost look at this as like sponsored experiences. They don't have to be overseas. They don't have to be about this particular issue, right? To Corey's point, if I take you somewhere, come see my site, come see the operations, I'll fly you over to wherever we can, you know, those sort of things for, for these backbench MPs which are not an insignificant group to lobby and persuade and, and convince, yeah. would you would you make this more of your advocacy diet when you talk to clients about it? Because $10,000 is a lot. But we know the hundreds of thousands that are often spent yeah. on grassroots lobbying, on government relations, on other things. And to be able to isolate someone for a period of time, to Carter, to go back to one of your turns, to maybe even work it too well, to have that, you know, like attention for, for almost exclusively... There is value here. So as you look at it as a practice, and we haven't discussed this on the pod before, what would your take be as a practitioner, advising a client, advising an institution uh, on whether to do something like this, engaging in something like this more? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, start a start a business over. I mean, this is this is just good good relationship building. Um, as I said, you know, there's there's going to be biases. There's going to be uh, relationships developed that will be intangible, but certainly valuable. Um, I would suggest that this is a, it, you know, this should be something in every practitioner's toolkit and it's going to be helpful. Uh, if you have, you know, uh, the ability to, to spend $10,000 per backbench MLA, um, and it's going to be way more than that. But if you're spending, uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in, in government relations anyways. Um, this is a lot, you know, talk to your government relations agency and ask them how to, how you can get this, make this a part of your, your mix, because this is a lot better than just asking that GR agency to, uh, to set up a meeting with the, uh, with the parliamentary secretary or, or some sort of um, junior minister. Corey, what do you think? As you kind of like assess this as a practice, I'm curious if you've got any thoughts. I mean, this is uh, this particular topic is just out of raw curiosity for me. And so I'm curious to get both of your perspectives. Would you make this greater part of your mix if you were in the position to advise organizations or institutions or, or charities or even nonprofits around, you know, how to how to persuade, how to convince, how to relationship build? Yeah, let, let's be clear. This is not going to be a tactic available to every nonprofit. You've got to have some fairly deep pockets to pull off something like this. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons I think we should approach it a bit cautiously in a public sense, right, when, when this is being occurred. But, um, yeah, if you can afford it, it does seem to be... You know, we used to talk a lot about, uh, Carter will remember this for sure, Zane, you might too, about like kind of the durability of communications mm -hmm. based on like how deep the connection was yeah. with individuals, right? And so, you know, it would be, uh, the metaphor I always used is like, if if I uh, walked by, uh, you know, and, and said to Carter, like, hey, hey, Carter, what's the weather going to be today? And he said, oh, it's going to be minus 30 degrees, right? move on with my life. Maybe I'd remember he said it was minus 30. Maybe I wouldn't, right? That's not a very durable conversation. But if we end up in this thing where all of a sudden it's we're stuck in the same room for four hours and he's like, I actually have a weather machine. Let's control the weather together. Let's talk mm -hmm. about what the weather could be. I'm going to remember it, right? And it's just kind of the length and the intensity and the back and forthness of the conversation when you have somebody on a trip like this, which is going to make it much it's going to make the point stick in your mind much stronger, even if you don't really anticipate it to. 
right? And and that's just human nature. That's the reality of any, you know, it's in some ways it's like, uh, what do they call that? When, you know, spaced out learning, like you hear something, you hear it again, you hear it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear it again. Like, you've just got the time for those particular uh, engagements at that at that moment. It's, now, I separated rules from ethics specifically yeah. a little bit earlier, though. Yeah. Trump rules allow this, right? I'm wondering, though, especially, you know, it was it was an exemption created for good intentions, I have no doubt. But the more people become aware of this exemption, the more people use this exemption, I think the more you have to question the ethics of this exemption. And I'm not saying that this particular moment is where any line is crossed. I'm certainly not. What I'm saying is, you know, if all of a sudden everybody is saying, well, all we got to do is just make it a trip somewhere and it's sponsored travel and we're all good. I mean, I have pretty significant problems with that. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, and and I appreciate that. You know, and, and there is, to both of your perspectives, there's a, an important reason I brought this up now, not just because it was a headline. And I know I, I knew the elements of it not being accessible or permissible for ministers or parliamentary secretaries to engage Carter. But for months on this show and the Canadian political pundit class has been talking about a change in government. And so when you are looking at the opportunity here to pursue the other side of the house, the conservatives. These are the future ministers. ministers. Exactly. Future ministers, future yeah. leaders. And when you look at it, I, gr- I appreciate your f- point co- fully, Corey, that not all nonprofits or charities would have the access to 10, 15, 20 grand a pop. But some of them do. Some organizations and institutions do. Uh, and for many that are trying to get multi billion dollar public policy change, 50, 100, 200 grand all in is a drop in the bucket for for the type of change that they're looking or the type of relationship they're looking to build, even more importantly, perhaps. And so this is why I kind of bring this up when we talk about a government in waiting. That isn't necessarily government. And by extension to the rules, uh, even graze out the ethical conversation even more, which is like, well, are these future ministers in waiting? Because we could pick them out right now. Six, eight of them. We kind of know who's going to be on the front bench in a couple of years. Should should everything head in the direction we think it's going to head in, Carter? Zane, I mean, you're so, so lovingly naive. I, I love this about you. You're a wonderful guy. Um, Corey, is it about nonprofits? Nonprofits are the group that can bring uh, MPs. Like, or does it ha- does it have to be a nonprofit? Because if it has to be a nonprofit, specifics. Because if it has to be a nonprofit, we'll just make a nonprofit. We got a nonprofit over here. Like if I'm a for-profit corporation, I can make a nonprofit in about 15 seconds. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that most nonprofit, most for-profit organizations have an industry association that's probably nonprofit. Um, there's lots of different ways of getting around this, where suddenly, you know, like if you're the insurance industry. Right. The insurance industry, you just you have a nonprofit organization, you fund the nonprofit organization and you can fly 100 MPs down to Florida and explain the insurance crisis to them uh, in Florida. Because, you know, first of all, that's where it really matters. Yeah. Shit's really happening in Florida. Um, and then you can fly them all back to Canada and explain that the same thing's happening here. It's amazing the opportunities that are available. I mean, we are not held up by the resources problem because the resources problem only exists in one small segment of this. The lobbying world, the 360 degrees of the lobbying world is over-resourced, not under-resourced in general. 
Yeah, yeah, and I mean, listen, this is a broader yeah. conversation amongst the within the confines of the lobbying rules, and we're new that new rules yeah. could be coming up shortly, and what that may mean to these trips, so to speak. But Corey, uh, you, you, any any comments on here? Or any thoughts on here as as it relates to us finishing off this topic on sponsored travel? Well, just that I don't know that there's any. Um any rule that says it has to be like a registered nonprofit or anything like that, there might be. I, again, I don't yeah. know enough about the rules. If there is, that's news to me. But, um, you know, the whole the whole check and balance on this thing is supposed to be that these lists are posted and that people then look at the lists and say, oh, look, that MP took a trip mm-hmm, from that mm-hmm. organization. And to Carter's point, like, yeah, okay, maybe you don't want to take a trip from – RBC, and I'm just picking RBC because it's the biggest company I could think of, right? But maybe you'd pick it from like Canadians for, you know, Canadians banking for, for banking. the middle class yeah. or something. Canadians for middle class banking, right? Yeah. And, and, and then all of a sudden, no problem. Easy peasy. And uh, yeah, this is the problem with these rules based systems. They essentially also create a roadmap for, okay, well, if that's not allowed, but I'm trying to do this thing where I'm really influencing this individual, well, what is permissible under these rules? And then, you know, it, it allows people to build out these these approaches that maybe fail that ethics test, but pass the rules test. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to leave There's that. There's almost st- no rules. There's almost no rules that we can't get around in some fashion, right? That's just the nature of human beings. <laughs> Nicely done, Carter. Wait, wait, uh, you know, uh, add punctuation to that to that final. I, I'm glad I, yeah. I didn't just move it on and I didn't trip over you there. I'm glad. That was, hey, listen, was well worth it. Can we yeah. go back for a second and just yeah, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah no, I'm fine. You want, you want to do a you want to do a review? You want to do a live action? Keep review? going. Keep going, brother. I'm with Carter, you, Carter. I'm going to move now. it on to our next segment. Look, this is going to be a three segment episode. Look at this. Wow. We're going to power wow. through another segment, just like the good old days. Oh my god! Yeah. Like quick efficient um deep in certain cases carter you know not me standing hey, carter, in the way you remember when uh zane used to make us do like haikus and stuff that was don't weird. bring it up again because if oh it comes back i'm i'm gonna you just... know what we're gonna do it right now let's move it on to our no, next segment carter our next <laughs> segment payback time oh now that's got two definitions carter um good good here, here's what you're gonna do okay you're first gonna give me your political analysis and then you're gonna write statements for me on behalf of the canadian government okay and i'll tell you what this topic is in a second it will reveal itself carter the canadian government had 900,000 businesses sign up for the SIBA loan, and that deadline, Stephen Carter, is coming. Now, many of those businesses are advocating that the feds give them more time. They're in a, a, a lot of debt. Most, a lot of restaurant owners over the course of the last week or so have been advocating publicly that most of us operate at a, at a loss. A lot of us are, are in significant debt. Uh, we need more time in order to pay back our SIBA loan from the pandemic. Carter, let's talk about the politics. Don't worry about the haiku so much, but it's coming. Carter, let's talk about the politics. Should the federal government entertain this and what's the political risk of not entertaining it this is what i want to get to you've got you've got nearly a million businesses you've got of course lobby groups like the canadian federation of independent business calling on ottawa to extend the ciba deadline carter should they and extend the deadline here is it easy for them to do so and what risks are there if if they don't politically well, I think that there are way more risks for not extending the deadline than there are from, you know, following the deadline. I think that because of the volume of the businesses, the number of businesses that got this, uh, we're dealing with kind of that heart of the economy, the, the small business 
uh, people. And small business people currently don't have a tremendous amount of love for the Trudeau liberals in the first place. Um, This gives them an opportunity to remind people that during the pandemic, businesses would have folded. Businesses would have disappeared had it not been for the federal government. And reminding people that we were there for you when we needed when you needed us and we're going to give you uh, another year or another 18 months perhaps with an incentive that if you pay back your SIBA loan today we'll give you five percent off uh, a five percent discount something along those lines to encourage someone you know some payback because uh, I'm sure that you know getting it paid back will have some sort of economic consequence uh, but the economic consequence compared to the political issue is inco- it's inconsequential. Um, extend the deadline seems to be the the smart play, which means, of course, if if we agree that it's the smart play, it means the Trudeau government will, of course, impose the deadline. So we know we know that for sure. Corey, is it the smart play? Uh, it seems like the obvious thing to be like, yeah, let's kick the can down the road. Who's going to actually, you know, care, so to speak? What would do you agree with Carter that it is a smart political play here to 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 kick it down the road, or would you hold firm to this deadline coming up in about four days or so? Yeah, man, I don't know. Is there like a a door number three here? Because all of it seems like it it's lose lose. So my understanding is extending the deadline a year would cost the government about a billion dollars, mm. right? There was a forgivable component to this. Not all of it was forgivable. I think about a third. Yeah, it was. It was I, max. I, I of, max of sixty, and you get max of, you get twenty back if you if you re- Yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah. So a third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's there's like the government has given a little bit already on this particular front here, right? But you know, here's the reality: one in five business, more than one in five businesses fail in their first year. Only 50% survive five years Mm -hmm. or longer, and only a third get to 10 years. And so you you start to think like, man, you kick that can too long, and they're just not even going to be there. And Mm -hmm. I think actually that is part of the problem. But I think that is part of the problem. Yes, some of these businesses are struggling. Some of these businesses are not able to make it back. But a lot of businesses are struggling at any given time. And so, yeah, it's pretty rough from a political point of view because some businesses that were prepared to fail anyways are now just going to fail yeah but from a policy point of view like that's that's challenging for me like what kind of moral hazards are you creating when you start saying well you know if the loan just becomes unpopular we'll give you the money for free like that the next time something like this happens is anybody going to think they have to pay it back but it's not for free Corey. i mean we're asking for it to be paid back and this is a political show. This isn't a bureaucracy show. I mean, yeah, tell tell Corey they, this episode. They, yeah, I mean, can <laughs> sh- shut up? Can we can we actually afford if if we're the liberals? Can we actually afford uh, another you know mark on our record, a stain on our record here? Like, especially on the economic side. This is kind of where I was going. Just, is like when you I'm bundle worried. economy, small business. These are like not necessarily the most helpful coalitions. For the liberals, Corey, what, what do you what do you kind of make of that in terms of the well, argument? Carter's like trying to what make? can you could you potentially do like you're going to pay half the penalty interest you normally would? Like, is there not a door three here is what I'm saying, where like you continue to do it, but you look like you're moving a little bit and you haven't totally taken leave of your senses on these things because, it, you know, it is also challenging. You, you say it's about politics, not bureaucracy, but 
you, we have got to get a little bit of longer term thinking into all of our politics here, or else we're just creating future traps for ourselves. And I don't, I don't know how you uh, allow such kind of a capricious application we, to to flourish when you're like eighteen months from the next election. Future self is really not that important, right? Yeah, like, but it's not about like the next fucking SEBA, Carter. It's like the next time somebody can't pay their taxes, the next time a sympathetic group can't pay their taxes, and they say, "Well, you did it for the SEBA loan." And so I just don't think that the government has the option of moving here. But because of its like once in a lifetime hope to God style event that it was, maybe there's a way to say, yeah, we'll we'll give you a bit of a grace on interest. You're still going to have to pay interest. It's still going to be like this rate. But, you know, you're 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 accruing interest now. That's just how it is. Carter, what would you do if you're Pierre Polyev on this? I would reiterate that uh you know the 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 Toronto or the Trudeau Liberals uh, have never understood small business. The the very first thing they did was come in and take away uh, small business profits through eliminating many uh, very solid and very important uh, tax uh, havens and opportunities to to manage tax load for small businesses. Now they're going to take away the loans that have, have basically kept businesses alive. Um, you know, they are driving the economy into the ground instead of driving uh, the Canadian economy forward. Um, if there ever was an example that would show that the liberals don't understand what's happening in the Canadian economy at this particular moment, uh, this policy would be that example. Uh, Carter, uh, how would you put that in a limerick? Oh, uh, and just while in you're preparing limerick. your while you're preparing your limerick, Carter, the, this is a uh, yeah. five. Uh, that's a haiku. Is a five seven five. You remember what a yeah. limerick is, right? Uh, no. Um, okay. Uh, do you remember? You don't remember I think what I a did limerick one is? Last week, though. Okay. Um, well, well, what do you mean by that? Do you want to explain that to people? What we, I think you... I, didn't I do a limerick the other day or during the big special? Uh, I, I don't. I don't think you did. Um, you you did, however, uh, desperately throw a hail mary heave and name a Filipino person. So congratulations on that, Carter. Carter, a limerick, often humorous, sometimes rude. Five line. Okay, there once was a man from okay. Nantucket, right, who kept all his cash yeah. in a bucket, but his daughter named Nan oh, ran like away it. with a man, and as for the bucket, Nantucket. Okay, there you go. That's an example. Okay. Okay, Carter. So you, Corey, don't jump ahead for you. Like you're not going to do a pure Polyev. You're not doing a pure Polyev. How about this limerick, Corey? Don't don't get excited about this. Corey's now deleting something from his computer. Okay, Corey, yours is going to come this? in a second. I'll give Corey a bit of a preview. Corey, you're you're the CRA. Okay, you're doing a, you're doing a CRA holding oh, okay. firm. Okay, Stephen Carter, five uh, five lines. You know what a limerick is? Pure Polyev in limerick form for the Cibalone political message. Go ahead, Carter. The floor is yours, please. Please. Okay. Um, there once was a man named Pierre. When businesses faced trials severe, SIBA came through with support, it's true, and now Trudeau's fucking everything up with fear. N- not bad. Not bad. Pretty good. Pretty good. I'll take it. I mean, considering all you had mm. was my verbal delaying for you. And buying you time, was, Corey. Corey I, you, I fucking hate yeah. this. We, no, I've but always Carter, hated d- it. Don't worry about it. We grade on a curve, okay? Because we've got okay. Corey Hogan here, who's had time okay. to prepare. I think he's written two limericks because he was also going down the pure track. But I also let him. I let him know that he's going to be. He's going to be representing yeah, the, CRA. the CRA holding yeah. firm. 
January 18th, they're telling these people, give us our fucking money back. Corey, lay it on on us. Said CRA to CEO, all that money in our hands must go. To mind for you, see, your taxes can't flee. The government needs all that dough. Not bad. Pretty good. On a curve, I give it to Carter. Uh, I give it to Carter on a curve. Yeah, Carter. We're going to leave that segment there. We're going to move it on to our over-under and our lightning round. Speaking of things uh, meant for Stephen Carter. Stephen Carter, the Iowa caucuses, the Republican ones, are tomorrow. Um, Over, under, on eight weeks. Okay? Over, under, on eight weeks, which would mean it's January 15th tomorrow. Let's use eight weeks roughly being... March too much. Okay, fifteenth yeah. or so. Over under on eight weeks, Ron DeSantis's Republican presidential career. Well, I mean, he'll be uh, Nikki Haley's running mate. I'm pretty sure. Uh, listen, I'm I'm going all in on Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley tomorrow is going to ex- <laughs> is going to exceed expectations. Corey, can you? Mark this one down, because Nikki Haley's going to exceed expectations. She's going to go into New Hampshire. She's going to win New Hampshire outright. South Carolina, home state, she's going to take South Carolina. And with three states in a row with Trump underperforming, boom, Nikki Haley with Ron DeSantis in her back pocket. So Ron DeSantis is done in eight weeks. We know that. Everybody knows that. Um, But Nikki Haley was going to be the next presidential nominee uh, for the president of the United States, for the Republican Party of the United States. Carter dropping bombs, which, by the way, uh, he will be dropping more of these on Tuesday. Is that right, Carter? Are we, Tuesday. Are we, we are going back. Now, there's, are we promoing? We are, I think we are promoing. Yeah, we're we're promoing, going yeah. back to this. I mean, I may or may not be there. I, I don't know. What yeah, the as like you weren't Tuesday. last time, right? Like, did uh, you I show was up there. at all last time? Oh, I killed it last time. You just you read the reviews. You the people. That's right, our American podcast. We're going to kick that off again now that the Iowa caucuses are here. New Hampshire is soon to follow. Carter's mentioned South Carolina. This is going to be a fun time to cover U.S. politics. You, the people, will start that on Tuesday evening. Corey, over under eight weeks, Ron DeSantis's Republican presidential career. Uh, it's got to be under. Like, if he comes in third tomorrow... He put everything into which Iowa. is where he's he polling right now. Most recently, to be clear, yeah, yeah, like he had he put he has an operation on the ground in I think all ninety nine counties in Iowa. He has spent all of his money there. If he comes in third to Haley, there he, he has no path forward. Like, what's his operation in New Hampshire going to do? Besides, sit there and be sad that it's all over before it even got to them. <laughs> he, he's rumored to be skipping <laughs> out a lot of New sad. Hampshire. So 30 said does seem like a very Ron DeSantis uh, situation. Um, how one year changes things. Uh, Ron DeSantis was supposed to be the big star, and it turns out he might be less than eight weeks away from, you know, ending his, you know, national political career. Carter, that question stays where it is. Carter, next one. Are you in or out on the following? John Gray Chan had his 90th birthday. The liberals did a big celebration. There was a cake. There was speeches. Are you in or out on political parties celebrating their their luminaries? Uh, you know, and then of course John Gray gets uh, you know a couple of days uh, of media, goes out on the talk shows, talks about Trudeau's career, talks about how politics are so different now. You can't say certain things anymore. Um, are you in or out? More broadly, on political parties celebrating their their luminaries publicly as uh, uh, as a sign of whether it's loyalty, celebration, whatnot. Yeah, I'm I'm very in. Uh, 
you know, I've been to a couple of Joe Clark birthdays. I think that uh, it makes sense uh, for the party and because it brings people back together again. It reengages them. It reminds them that they like each other. Uh, it's why Corey and I do this podcast. It reminds us that we kind of like you, you know, like otherwise we'd become distant, Zane, because you never, you don't call, you don't write. It's it's upsetting. I try not to. Um, I mean, I, ta- I talked to Zane earlier today, actually, now that, now that you mentioned it. He was extremely transactional, though. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's very hurtful <laughs> because I did not get any calls. You did not get a phone call. Okay. Corey, are you in or out on political parties, you know, spending time, attention on the past? I guess that's another way to put it. Celebrating their luminaries. You in or out on this? I, I think I'm in. I, these things matter. Cultural fabric of political parties matters. They also matter for the country. It's easier for us to look back on the, the past leaders and be charitable to them no matter where we stand on the political spectrum. Obviously, the other big one this week was, of course, Ed Broadbent. Mm-hmm. And and everybody talking about his legacy and very positive words said about him from, you know, the Bloc Quebecois, from the Conservatives, from the Liberals, and of course, from New Democrats. And I think these moments, as much as they can often make me roll my eyes when they're about like the person who just lost the election, like, oh, and they're a great Albertan. You know, the person I was saying was terrible for the last four weeks. I, I now think they're okay. They're a wonderful Canadian now that they're no longer in an op, you know, place to become, mm-hmm. you know, a part of government. I, I hate that shit, but I think when you're talking 10, 20, 30 years out in some of these cases and the legacy they've provided and that we can all look more charitably on it, that's useful. That's how you build a country, right? You you have people you can point to who are role models to us all, not just role models to new Democrats and role models to liberals or role models to conservatives. And and I think that's great. So by all means, lift them up. Should we be doing more of it? You guys are both in. I'm just curious, should we be doing more of this sort of stuff? This like cross-partisan celebration? Like, uh, Carter, what do, you, what do you think? I think we should be doing delegated conventions. I think that, you know, once a year, everybody should come together. I think that... There should be a political elite of the people, not a political elite of the, you know, of a small group, but a political elite of 10 or 12 people per riding that go to conferences, that, that fundraise for themselves to go to these, to these events that are a part of uh, the team because those positions become valuable and people become invested in, in achieving them. So I think we should do more. I, I don't think we should do less. Koi, any thoughts before I move it on to our final one? We'll yeah, take that but, note. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> our final question, Corey, I'm going to give you a shot on it. Uh, it's a prediction. So which, do you want me to let Carter go first so you can come second? Actually, I'm going to let Carter go first. Carter. Yeah, you, you let Carter Yeah, and I think, Carter, you've given us your answer on this. Who wins the Iowa caucuses on oh, Monday? Winner. Like, do, okay, so outright we're saying winner. winner. I, oh, outright I, winner don't, is Donald don't Trump. Don't give me... Stu- don't, okay, you're going to go with Trump. Donald Trump. I mean, by... By, I would suggest 17 and a half points. See, he did not need to do the second. That would be quite an underperformance. That would be a massive underperformance. Here's, here's a question, Carter. Let me actually yeah. rephrase the question. Donald Trump, and does he get above 50? Uh, no. Does Donald get Trump, he gets around 42. Okay. We'll watch, we'll watch to see mm-hmm. if Stephen Carter eats crow on Tuesday night. Corey, it's tomorrow, Monday, the caucuses. Who's the winner? And if it's Donald Trump, does he get above 50? It, it has to be Trump at this point. You have to think. He's up by like 30 points in the polls right now. Does he get above 50? He's hovering right there. 
I think. I think he's kicking around like 50 to 55% in most of the polls. I am going to say that he does not because I do believe that caucuses can surprise. And I think that quite often caucuses surprise uh, with candidates who are, you know, a little more under the radar. And uh, I'm not subscribing to the idea that Ramaswamy's coming out of nowhere, but I think perhaps Nikki Haley will outperform. I think perhaps the, well, let's put it this way. For a guy who's ahead by 30 points, Donald Trump has actually spent a surprising amount of time in Iowa relative to what he said he would spend. Mm. He's been there about twice as much as he said. So maybe he is going for that knockout blow. Maybe he just wants an overwhelming victory in Iowa. Or maybe he worries that he's a little bit soft in some areas. And I think that if I had to guess, it was more that. And I'm not saying he doesn't win by 20 points, but I'm saying I don't know if he wins by 30. Yeah, Carter's put his hand mind, up, so this guys. must be really good. This has to be really good. Carter, this is going to be excellent, because this is yeah. going to close the show right now, Carter. So here we go. Let's tee it up. Stephen Carter, take us home. It's minus 24 degrees uh, in Iowa right now. It is going to be freezing. I think we'll see low attendance at the caucuses. I think low attendance benefits Haley. Okay, thank you for that weather report. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 1279 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Belgi. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we will see you 